The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, before we look into your word for us this morning, I want to express our thanks to you again for the mothers here in our church who look out for the good of their children day after day after day. Bless them and bless their families and, and bless their legacy. And for the mothers and grandmothers that you've given us, those living and those who have passed away, we give you thanks for the blessing to our lives that they are and have been. And for those grieving this Mother's Day, the losses related to motherhood, we pray for your grace and comfort. Now in this text this morning, you you have a word of grace for us, corporately, collectively. It's an encouragement for all of the ways we've experienced the grace of Christ living through us and blessing one another, and it's a corrective for all the ways that we have failed to live out the glorious calling of this text. So I pray that by this moment, as we look into your word, that you would use this text to empower the display of our new life in Christ all the more in our attitudes and actions toward one another in this church for the glory of Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. Well, our text is the same text as last week's text. And this passage explains what new life in Christ entails for any and everyone who's received Christ by faith. Having been united in Christ, we now live a new life, a life that is new because of the presence and power of Jesus Christ living by his resurrection life in and through us. So there's a, there's a new life that we're about. We have these new selves that go about this new life. And, and I just found this fascinating. And, and I put it in the context of this metaphor of of uh, the routine that we experience when we, every day, when we wake up in the morning and we get dressed and we go out into the day. So in that metaphor, here's what I said last week. I said, we wake up in our new identity in Christ. And uh, it was noteworthy to me that Paul, before he went on to talk about these Christ-like character traits, stopped to anchor our identity in God's grace to us in Christ. Remember the three words? You are chosen, you are holy, and you are loved. Wake up (laughs) every day, a day in in the new life, a day in life. Every day we just wake up like this by God's grace, aware of our new identity. We've been chosen by God, according to his sovereign grace, before the foundation of the world, we have been set apart as holy, set apart by God, for God, for his purposes. And he's at work sanctifying us. And, and the day's going to come when he will have fully glorified us. And we have been and always will be loved. 
Beloved is what our text says. Loved by God in the fullness of his everlasting love that he has for his son. That love for his son is ours because of our union with Christ. So before we think about anything in the day, we just rest in who God calls us to be, who God says that we are in Christ. I received a a text with a photo and three words a couple of days ago. And the photo was of of a MacBook and just below the keyboard, there was a post-it note that had three words on it. Chosen, holy, and loved. And the text said, thank you. I hope you're there. I mean, Paul's layout of this text is be there first and then get dressed. Then get dressed. That was the second point last week. Then put on the new self. You know, awaken to your new identity. Get dressed. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Clothing ourselves with these, these Christ-like character traits. This is the, the routine of the normal life. Christ lives in us. We yield to his, his life, his person, his character come through us with these traits. That's the putting on of of the new self. It's talked about there in verse 12. And now, I mean, now when we step into verse 13, it's, it's as if, well, if that identity awareness and if that getting clothed in the new self in Christ happens in the bedroom, now verse 13 breaks us out into the world of interactions with other human beings. (laughs) Particularly, in this text, other believers. So, this third step in in the day, this ordinary day, a day in the life, is uh, stepping into what I would call new community. A new community of believers who have a new identity in Christ, who've put on a new self in Christ, and they interact with one another according to the grace of Christ, and thereby create a a new people, a new community marked and shaped by the gospel. You know, you think, why is this community piece? You know, Americans were, were famously individualistic. You know, like we, 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 we you know, by, by our culture, by upbringing, we'd be totally happy to stop in the bedroom and, and, and enjoy our Christianity. And there is a Christianity to be enjoyed in solitude. However, however, God calls us into community I think it's laid out this way because the real test of our living the new life, living out the new self that we've created to be as Christ lives in us and through us, the real test comes in our interactions with one another. The new life in Christ will show 
If, it, if it's in us, it'll show there. And if it's not, it won't. So now, in verses 13 through 17, I see six descriptions of our new life in Christ in relation to our interactions with one another that that create and shape this new life community that we're called to be. Six ways. And and what I did, I did this just to get a handle on them. I I phrased them into six commitments. I, I took these commands and turned them into commitments. And, and here, I'll read one in just a second. But if you're taking notes, it's these six things that I want you to remember. It's these six things. Number one, forbearance and forgiveness. Now, here's my sentence. This commitment that I want us to make because of what this text says. By the power of Christ living in us. Pause. All of these are us's. Get it? They're all of us. The, the plurals in this passage are all over the place. These are commands to us, plural. Forbearance and forgiveness. By the power of Christ living in us, we commit ourselves to forbear and forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven us. Verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forbearance or bearing with one another is that characteristic of Christ's relationship to us whereby he is patient with us. He has shown long-suffering with us. He has endured our sins and our failings. And in his patience, he brings us to repentance. He does not walk out the door on us. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't unfriend you like some so-called friends might do. No, he bears with us in patience and forbearance and faithfulness according to the new covenant. Forgiveness is often taught right side by side with forbearance as it is here. Forgiveness goes further than bearing with the sins and shortcomings of others. Forgiveness is not holding the sin or offense or the the debt of another against them. It's obviously a reflection of God's grace to us in the gospel. The the root word forgiveness here is, is linked to the word grace, implying this is an undeserved forgiveness. And it's present tense, which should come as no surprise if you're aware doctrinally that we believe in total depravity, meaning everything we do is tainted by sin. We're not as sinful as we could always be, but everything is tainted. 
we've seen. So it should come as no surprise that in the church, a bunch of believers living together, that forgiveness is going to be required. It's present tense. Continually forgiving one another. Continually bearing with one another. This is the new community. Now, if you notice how this is set up, the, the, the situation, the occasion here is you are the offended party in this verse. Another person has wronged you. You have a complaint against them. And yet here in this text, nothing's really said about the offender because for the purposes of this teaching, it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter why they offended you or how. It doesn't matter. The text is talking to you and me. It's talking to us as offended, the offended party. And this is the, the first communal expression of the new life that Paul points us to. Forbearance and forgiveness. This is so basic to historic, orthodox Christianity taught all through the Bible, all through the New Testament, the words of Jesus, Paul, Ephesians 4.32, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the big question is, how do you respond when people offend you, bother you, annoy you, hurt you, or sin against you? Well, this text says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. I mean, I could have made a list of ways people get out of the, the meaning of this text. I, I probably could have spent the rest of the sermon listing ways that believers duck out of this text. Kind of trap door, like, I don't have to do that. I'll give you two. I, I call them escapes. <laughs> Escape number one. Don't forgive others until you know they will not offend you again. And it may be that thought that Peter had in his mind. You know where I'm going. Matthew 18, when he said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Remember what Jesus, Peter offered as many as seven times? Okay, maybe. Jesus says, no, not, not seven, but 77. 77 times. Seven times seven. Excuse number, escape number two. Look, I'm going to wait for a complete confession and apology before I forgive. I've heard professing believers who've been believers for years unblushingly say to me, I will forgive the one who offended me, but only after I hear a full and complete confession of all the offenses against me to my satisfaction. To forgive without that 
is to make a mockery of justice and holiness and to make light of offenses and sins. I'm not forgiven. Bring on the full confession that I'm satisfied with. Such thinking in regard to personal offenses among believers is not a mockery of justice unless by justice you mean the death of Christ. It's a mockery of the gospel. It's a mockery of God's forgiveness of us. It's a mockery of God's justice in the sense that Christ died to satisfy God's justice in order that we would be forgiven and be, and be forgiving people. And it disregards God's promised justice. You think about how could Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There were no confessions. How can Stephen forgive the people throwing stones at him, killing him? I'll tell you how Jesus did it and how I believe Stephen did it and how believers through the centuries have done it. We know from the Bible that Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He put justice in God's hands and he spoke forgiveness. Believers have been doing this through the centuries. After suffering the most horrific and horrible sins, But back to our text now. There is a ground, a reason for you to forgive another person. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's not, the ground is not that their confession accords with your assessment of the offense. You, you don't want to think that way. You are not God. Confession helps move forgiveness along. But look at the ground here. The ground or motive here for you to forgive another person, like I said, has nothing to do with the one who offended you, but rather the ground or motive is that God in Christ has forgiven you, period. So you must also forgive. Simple. Simple to understand only done in the omnipotent power and grace of the Holy Spirit and the life of Christ living and flowing through us. And forgiving is not to say that we go on trusting an offender in the same way. It's not to say that there aren't consequences. It's not to saying that there isn't church discipline. It's not to saying that we might not have to testify before the court against them. It's not to say there, there won't be consequences or discipline or punishment by earthly authorities of the church or, um, and, or the state or, the, or, or parents even or or employment, uh, you know, your employer. It's not to say that at all, but rather, even in those situations where those consequences are warranted, we're called to forgive. 
boy, I, I, I would love to just take the hour and fill it with stories of Christians forgiving in the most wicked and horrible situations. They're out there. And you probably know some. But I'm going to move on. Number two. So number one, forbearance and forgiveness. Number two, description of this new community made up of people who have new life in Christ, the life of Christ living in us and through us. Number two, love. Here's the commitment. By the power of Christ living in us, we commit ourselves to love one another. Verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What does above all these mean? Uh, one way to understand it, in, in keeping with the clothing metaphor, you know, putting on the new self, would be that love is like a coat or a jacket. You, you, know, you put on the, the five traits of the new self, uh, compassion and kindness, and, and then you put this jacket over it called love, and it holds everything together. And, and uh, the meaning in, in, in that sense would be that in our compassion or in our kindness or in our meekness and gentleness, it would be shaped by love. In, in other words, let me just run it with compassion that, that as we are kind-hearted and compassionate, have compassionate kindness, that kindness would be shaped by what's really loving. It would be really for the person's good and, and, and not, not just free-floating compassionate kindness, but anchored to love. That would be one way to see it. Another way would be to see it. This above all these put on love would be, well, well the new commandment of the gospel is that we love one another as Christ has loved us. And so love is the greatest obligation that we have. So above all these would be like, love would be above all these other traits, all these other obligations that we have toward one another. Love would be the thing that would be preeminent supreme and uh, both would be true but in this text I really favor the, the former because it, it tracks with a parallel passage in uh, Ephesians listen to Ephesians uh, 5 2 I should back up Ephesians 4 32 names these traits, similar traits, overlapping traits with the new self. Uh, kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. And then it sums that up with this phrase. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, in your kindness and in your tenderheartedness and in your forgiveness, walk in love. May it be loving kindness, loving tenderheartedness, loving forgiveness, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So that's number two. 
love. Here's number three. Peace. I'll read the phrase. The commitment. By the power of Christ living in us and having been called to unity, called to one body, we commit ourselves to be governed by the peace of Christ. The beginning of verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. The peace of Christ. Christ Jesus achieved peace for us. Peace with God according to the promise of the gospel. He himself is our peace. Back in in Colossians 1, he's called out as making peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.20. So now, since you have come to know peace with God through Christ, let that peace rule in your heart. Let that peace rule in your hearts. I put that S on on purpose. It's not a singular. It's us thing. Let Christ's peace rule in our hearts. It's not a solo inner peace that transcends our circumstances, which is wonderful and true. This text is talking about a peace in our hearts. The word translated rule is is great. Maybe it's because I'm a baseball guy. I noticed this a a while back. It, it, It could be translated umpire. But the peace of Christ, umpire in your heart. Meaning, let the peace of Christ rule or arbitrate or govern your hearts. Like, like an umpire overseeing an athletic competition. Let this peace of Christ act like a, a guard, a, a, a governor on what you do, that what you do does not violate the peace of Christ in the body to which you have been called. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were, you were called in one body. You know, this, this same peace, if you chew on it, not only preserves the church from division, preserves the church in grievances, dissolves factionalism, uh, preserves the church in, in all the diversities of ethnicity, economic diversity, educational diversity. And remember, this is an election year preserves the church in this midterm election year. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts as we're called into this one body in Christ Jesus. Number four, thankfulness. Here's the statement. By the power of Christ living in us, we commit ourselves to unceasing thankfulness to God. The, the pastoral letter a few weeks ago, I just listed the seven places in Colossians where 
Paul calls us to be thankful. It's mentioned three times in our little text. (laughs) Three times. I'll read them for you. Verse 15 at the end. And be thankful. Coming out of the call to peace. And be thankful. Uh, Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. <laughs> Thankfulness. Give thanks. We, we are to be uh, a plurality, a community, a, a bunch of people, a church, marked by thankfulness to God. And you know why? Because everything good that we have is from him, And and Colossians just wants to make sure that we do not take the grace of God for granted, but that we give God glory and honor for his grace to us over and over again by expressions of thanks. Thankfulness in, in, in our peace and unity. That's what I see in the first mention in 15b. Thankfulness in our, in our worship and in our teaching. It's there in verse 16. And thankfulness in our glorifying Christ in everything that we do. This is a mark of the new community of believers in which Christ is living through us. Thankfulness. Thankfulness to God. Thankfulness to God. You know, thankful people are not prone to grumble against God or one another. Thankful people are humble people. They're not boastful or proud or self-exalting because they know that what do we have that we didn't receive? It's all from God, all from Christ. And, uh, oh, God, make us to be a, a thankful people. Here's number five. I'm calling this a word-saturated community. Here's the statement. By the power of Christ living in us, we commit ourselves to be a word-saturated worshiping community. By the power of Christ living in us, we commit ourselves to be a word-saturated worshiping community. I'm trying to sum up verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The, the new life community is rich with the word of Christ. It's not, it's not some secret word that one person has and other people don't. It's It's the word of Christ, the word about Christ. It's the teachings of Christ. And since the whole scriptures point to Christ and are about Christ, I take this to mean this is a call that the Bible would dwell in us richly. Richly. This is a call to to know biblical truth. This is a call to memorize biblical truth. How in the world are you going to 
teach and admonish one another if it's not in you. It's a call to study. It's a call to learn. It's a call to memorize the Bible and so grow in faith and knowledge of God. It means that the new community is one that's unapologetically biblical. It's a teaching people. It's a Bible teaching people that lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God and teaches everything that Jesus has commanded as he told us to. It's a, it's a community that in the, in the teaching and in the speaking to one another, it's marked with a, a spiritual grace of wisdom. So it's, it's the, the picture I get is of a community who wisely brings the word to one another, wisely brings like a word of admonition or correction from the word, from the Bible, with wisdom, not beating people over the head with it. And wisely brings a word of, of deep encouragement and strengthening to one another. Not unwisely or carelessly, but with wisdom that it might impart grace to the receiver. And it means that the word is essential to our heartfelt worship. And it is, isn't it? I love sitting under God's word with you here, and I love singing the word with you here. Word and song, song and word, with thankfulness in our hearts to God. This is the makeup of the, of the new community saturated by the word in, in worship together, in one another life. I've got one more. Number six. This new community is marked by one purpose. Feels like the bookend on a new identity, a new purpose. A new purpose. By the power of Christ living in us, we commit ourselves to do everything in the name of Christ. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So our life together is all for one purpose. All done in his name, all done by his life, flowing in and through us and therefore all for his glory as he works his character and his grace through us into the lives of one another in this new life community that God has given us. This is the new life in community as we've seen it here. Strong and secure in our identity in Christ as chosen and holy and loved, clothed with the new self, these Christ-like character traits, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and living out the new life together in community with one another, with these common commitments, these resolves to forbearance and forgiveness 
with love binding everything together, with the peace of Christ governing our unity in Christ, with thankfulness unceasing, with word saturating, a worshiping community where we're wording one another and we're wording one another, I want to say with words and with song and in heartfelt worship. And as we're united in one purpose, that it is all for the glory of Christ, for the glory of God and for our joy. This is the new community. New life in Christ in us. We band together. This is the new community. This isn't just Kenny's little wish dream for Bethlehem. Praise God. It is. (laughs) But it's God's vision for our church. Father in heaven, make it so. Make it so among us. By the power of your word, the work of your spirit, your grace to us in Christ, you're working in each and every one of us. This is not a calling that is out of reach. You're God, and you're at work in us. So do it among us all the more for the glory of your name. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.